So Psalm 2, if you guys want to open up your Bible there, I'm going to uh, start off this morning by um, reading Psalm 2, and um, actually I want to pray, I want to pray for those who are sick, I want to pray for our ministries, and I also want to take the time to pray for the other churches in our community, and today on our list is Canyon Community Baptist Church, and the pastor there is Pastor Dave, they're up on the north side of town, um, Pastor Dave is a godly man who teaches God's word. And uh, we want to lift them up in prayer as well as we give thanks for uh, the fact that there's other brothers and sisters that we have in our town um, that love the Lord and um, we, can, we can stand alongside them um, and we want to do that in prayer. So let's pray. If you guys bow your heads. Father, thank you for this time here this morning, Lord. Thank you that you're still in control of all things around us, Lord, even when, when it feels maybe at times to us like things are out of our control. And, and really, God, sometimes that that sense of being in control is just misguided anyway. And we don't want to, we want you to be in control. So Lord, take control of our hearts, our minds, um, our persons, Lord, again today. We bring them into submission to you. We thank you, God, for this opportunity to, to gather together, to be encouraged, to be strengthened through um, uh, song and worship, through um, the, the Sunday school messages that are going on in the back with the kids through our time here as the word's being taught. And Lord, for those who can't be with us here this morning, who are sick or who are traveling, Lord, we pray that you would be with them. For those who are sick, Lord, we pray you bring a healing upon their body um, and that you would continue to keep the rest of us, Lord, from, from getting sick. And, and, um, and Lord, even if we do, we know that, that um, you're still in control and you watch over us, and you protect us, and you can bring a healing to us. And Lord, for the ministries that are temporarily on pause this next week, Lord, we ask for the opportunities to continue to reach to the kids that are at the Bridge Youth Center and the ones that come to the preschool. Lord, how to continue to love them and to show them your love through this time, Lord. And we pray for Pastor Dave up at the Canyon Community Baptist Church. We thank you for him. Thank you for their church, Lord. We know that they also read and study your word and teach through it verse by verse and chapter by chapter. And we pray, God, that you would fill Dave with your Holy Spirit so that he may rightly divide your word, Lord, and that he may speak truth with um, courage and, and, and with <clears throat> insight, God, that can only come from you. Lord, I know that you tell us that the natural man cannot discern um, spiritual things, Lord, and your word is um, spiritual truth. It's, it's everyday truth. It's, it's what leads us and guides us. It's a lamp into our feet. And so, Lord, we pray that you would um, lead and guide and teach us this morning as we read your word now and study it together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so Psalm 2, I'll read if you want to follow along. It says, why? It starts off with this question, and this question is really, it's a rhetorical question because it's based upon an observation that's already connected to knowing the end, okay? And so it begins with this statement, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Question, the kings of the earth set themselves, so here's, here's what's being observed, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, so this is what they say, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Yet, verse four, he who sits in the heavens, we know who that is, shall laugh. At what? Over all these things that is just being observed. The Lord shall hold them, it says, in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And then this declaration in verse 6. Yet, I have set my king on my holy hill. 
of Zion. And this is the reason for the laughter and the, the question that's just that, that speaks to the vanity of, of what's going on here. And the reason why is because God's plan isn't their plans. And God's plan, verse 6, is what will prevail, right? That's what we're seeing. So in verse 7, it says, I will declare the decree. The decree being verse 6. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them like, like you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O king. So we're going to talk about this, but I want to put that into perspective. And I kind of forgot to do that beforehand with the first service. I want to do that now. Now, therefore, be wise. Guys, there's, there's two different wisdoms out there. There's the wisdom of God and there's the wisdom of the world, right? And the wisdom of man is foolishness, the Bible says, compared to the wisdom of the world. And this is, what, this is God's calling the people of the earth to his wisdom. And we know what, from what we read in, in the book of Proverbs that, that wisdom begins with what? The fear of the Lord. And even for us again today, because we can look at this and we can look at it um, existentially as we look at it, how it applies to the nations and kings and rulers, and, and we ourselves might go, well, I'm not a king, and, and, and these, but it is, and it's a message to us individually. It's a message to the church as well to check our hearts. Where are we getting our wisdom from? And how is it beginning? What is it rooted in? And, 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 and it says, now therefore be wise. Oh, kings, because there's this appeal here in these last verses based upon what we just previously read. It's almost this pleading that's going on. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little and blessed are those, all those, who put their trust in him. All right, I want to start off this morning before we, we, we get into this, this psalm too. I want to start off by saying that the book of Psalms, like I mentioned last week, they're a collection, 150 psalms, many different authors written over many different, throughout a, a different space of time, many, many years of time. But yet, God through the Holy Spirit has led to the compiling of them. And, and in the compiling of them, we've seen some connections. I talked about some of those connections when I introduced it last week. And we'll, we'll go over those connections as we go through it. But one of the connections to see that this is, this is a work of God is that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, even though they can stand alone uh, and apart from all the other psalms, we, we see that at the same time, they are a foundation for what we read throughout the rest of the book of Psalms. Everything that we read from this point on builds upon the truths that are found here. It's the foundation. Everything rises upward. And as we prepare to look at this next Psalm, I want to point that there's an interesting contrast. Even though they're foundational, it's like two pillars uh, of truths that, that stand forward or, 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 or that project forward to everything else that, that is built upon it. And, 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 and there's this interesting contrast in, in this first pillar, Psalm 1, between the second pillar, Psalm 2. Yet when we look at them together, we see how they are together foundational for, for all the other Psalms that follow. And if you remember from last week's study, Psalm 1 puts the, the focus on God's law, right? God's commands. And it does so as it addresses the individual, 
the righteous man, the person. The, it speaks in this, this context of a singular person, but many persons singularly, right? The individual, by examining the righteous person, who, who we read about that walks in the way um, of God, that, that walks according to God's ways, and, and, and it was put in contrast, the Psalm 1, all that was put in contrast to the ungodly person, the unrighteous person who, who simply does not. They do not walk in the way of God. They do not walk according to God's laws, God's will, God's command, God's counsel, any of those things. They're, they're, they're a self-driven person that does things their, their way in a way that seems right to them. And we know what Scripture says about that, that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death or destruction. And that's the same message put forth in Psalm 1 as that one pillar. But now in Psalm 2, as you've seen as we read it, there's a difference in, in, in many ways. The first is that the difference is, is the focus isn't put on just the individual. The focus is put on a group of people, these nations, right? As the Psalm speaks of God's king and speaks prophetically about the Messiah, God's Messiah, the anointed, the King of Kings, right? Whom God would send, and 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 um, it's the 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 then the, the nation. The the focus in light of that is on how people, how nations, how kings respond to this. And unlike Psalm one, which is which is not quoted or referred to anywhere else in the Bible. There's not one single reference anywhere else through Scripture about Psalm 1. Psalm 2 is different in that, that in these 12 verses, these 12 verses of this psalm, 18 different times it's quoted or alluded to throughout the New Testament. So Psalm 1 stands as a pillar where we see that God says, it's about my word. I value my word. My, my word is important. Blessed is the man who, who keeps my word. But it's, it's, it's the word and the king, right? God's leader, God's authority. The king and the word. The king and the word. And that's a very interesting thing to keep in mind as we go through this because we see that as a theme repeated over and over again throughout the Psalms as well. And, and, and the word of God for that matter. And before we, 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 we get into Psalm 2, I think it's important as we look at these two together to glance back briefly at Psalm 1. And if you remember in Psalm 1 verse 1, when we finished last week's study, I did so by, by referencing John chapter 14 where Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, right? And we took that passage, that statement about Christ and, and, and the name of Jesus and inserted it into Psalm 1. So this is what we did. And we did that by saying, by looking at first about Psalm 1, about blessed is the man who's not walking the way of the ungodly, and, and um, even though we strive for that, who here has ever walked in the way of the ungodly? Okay, it happens. I know. Sinners sin. Ungodly people walk with ungodly people. But the reason we take Jesus is because he, as the blessed man, God and man, together in one, he is the perfect person to have perfect, be the perfect example of the blessed man who's never walked in the way of the ungodly. That's Jesus. Likewise, when we do this, we see another reason for why Jesus referred to himself, again, from John chapter 14, verse 6, he, Jesus referred to him as the way. Who blesses the man who's not walking the way of the ungodly? How do you do that? You walk with Jesus, right? 
We walk with Jesus in relationship with him. And that's what, that's what we look at when all of God's word is brought together in light of Psalm 1. And in the same manner, when we, when we look at Psalm 1 verse 2 and insert Jesus, who is the only person who has ever perfectly kept the law, blessed the man who keeps the law, right? Who always does the will of the Father. We know that that is Jesus. And we also see then another reason for why Jesus refers to himself in John chapter 14 verse 6 as the truth. He's the truth. He's, he's the way. He's the truth. And if we look at the third verse of Psalm 1, which describes the, the godly person, what describes what the godly person is like. Remember, it says he's like a tree who is planted by a river. He's bearing fruit in his season. His, his leaf never withers. And what we know is that he's saying ultimately is that the, this person will have life and will bring forth fruit. And when we insert Jesus, who is God in the flesh, right? The one from whom all life comes, the one from whom all life is sustained. We see another reason for why Jesus then in John chapter 14 verse 6 said, I am the life. He is the way, he is the truth, and the life. And I point this out because when we insert Jesus into Psalm 1, we clearly see him as the only perfect man. And we're once again then shown our need for Jesus, and how there is no hope apart for uh, no hope for anyone apart from faith in Jesus. And yet, when Jesus is now in the same manner, in a similar way, inserted into this second psalm as a, as an additional pillar for everything that goes forward, which is a messianic psalm, right? A messianic psalm full of prophecy quoted throughout all the Bible, we then see Jesus as something more than just a man, right? The perfect man, the only righteous man. We see him being described here and ultimately being identified here as the king of kings. The king of kings who comes to rule and reign forever. God's king, Jesus Christ, the only begotten son. So this psalm, which is 12 verses long, I already said that, can equally be divided into four sections of three verses. Three times four is 12. Four sections, three verses. And it's a perfect breakdown. Again, these are, these are poems, and so we see the parallelism in each one of these sections, but we see the poetic format to it. In each one of these sections, there's a different voice that is heard to be speaking. And hopefully you kind of keyed in on that, and we want to identify that and look at that and, and, and break this psalm down in that order. And in verses 1 through 3, if you're taking notes, the one who is heard speaking is the voice of the nations. Then in verses 4 through 6, it's the voice of God, the Father. And, and God the Father is then addressing the nations. He's speaking to the nations. And he does so in three different ways. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that. But in verses 7 through 9, there is also the voice of of the anointed, the only begotten Son of God. So you have the nations, you have God the Father, you have God the Son, which is a really cool thing. And then who do you think is in the last part? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And, and, and we know that because there's this, uh, this voice of appeal in 11 through 13 calling people to the place of repentance. And we can discern that it's the Holy Spirit because we know what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is in the Old Testament and the New Testament is to call people to the place of repentance. It's to call, convict people of their sin and unrighteousness and point them to the Savior. And that's what we read in the last verses of the psalm. So you see a picture of the Trinity there once again in Scripture. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit appealing, speaking to, drawing men in this, in this 
corporate or in this, this institutional sense to himself, those who are raging against him. So in verses one through three, look here, we'll read it again and then we'll go through it. It says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? And the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. And notice in verse two, there's two different individuals being referred to there. And I wanna, I wanna get to that here, but kings and rulers, right? Kings of the earth set themselves and, and the rulers take counsel together. Two different groups coming together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, this is what they say. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. And you can imagine the peoples in those groups doing that. They're like, their leaders speaking to them. This is how I envision it. It's like this big rally. Maybe it's a protest or a riot, right? And like, yeah, let's, and they're, let's do this. And we remember even from the book of Revelation, we see that there's a time where people of the earth during the time of God's judgment will shake their fists at God and curse God together. And it's the same kind of idea that we're seeing here. And this voice of the nations that we read about it's the voice of rebellion. And it's that voice of rebellion that's in all of us. Because we've been that, and we can be that. We can be those people that are like, yeah, we're gonna cast away your cords. We're gonna break your bonds. Because why? We wanna go our way. And that's the heart of this root of, this heart of rebellion against God and against God's anointed, God's king, the king of kings. And according to verse one, the first thing that we're told about this nation is, is they rage. And that's an interesting word. It's the, the Hebrew word used here is the word ragash. And I think we all have felt rage before. And I think rage is one of those things. I think it's different than anger because um, I've been angry before and, and done things. But that rage, I think there's this sense of awareness because it's, it's, um, it's like you're doing it and you know you're doing it. And, and you're like, maybe, you should, you're going, maybe I shouldn't be doing it, but you're like, I'm going to do it anyway. Right? And you're just angry and you're reacting. And sometimes it's like with your spouse, like, I know I shouldn't say that, but I'm going to say it anyway. You know, you're raging against all wisdom, against all wise counsel. And there's the, in that word, ragash, it means this it's, it's more than individual, it's to assemble together tumultuously. And man, I, I don't know about you, but if you've turned on the TV in the last few months and seen some of the things that are going on in some of these bigger cities, thank you and thank God that we've kind of been isolated from here. This is what I envision. And the Hebrew word that is used here that describes this gives a very um, graphic illustration. And this rage is then expounded upon in detail at the end of verse 1. It kind of tells us what's going on there. It say they do so in order to plot a vain thing. Right? They're, they're plotting, but it's, it's a vain thing from God's perspective. They're, they're kind of blinded to it. They think they really have a chance and they do so because they, they, they set themselves together and they take counsel in order to come against the Lord and his anointed. And in light of this, I want to I point out that, that, that both the physical realm, and we have to keep this in mind, okay? The physical realm and the spiritual realm that we know to be true are represented here together in that verse. Remember, in Ephesians chapter 6, where we're told to take up the whole armor of God, Right? so that we might be able to stand in the day and pray. The shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, sword of truth, right? We, we, we gird ourselves, we, 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 we prepare for battle. But in doing so, it tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, about the spiritual realm that we're talking about. And it says, remember, for we do, not, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, and against the rulers of this dark age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And the word I want you to keep in on, and maybe you already heard it, 
as in relationship to what we're reading here in the book of Psalms, is that it's this, this word rulers. So you have the kings and rulers. And I think truly, without a doubt, what is being pictured here is the kings as a representation of the physical, but the rulers whom they're taking counsel from is in regards to the spiritual forces and powers that we're being warned against in Ephesians chapter 12. And, and, and it reminds us that, that there are spiritual forces that are coming against God and coming against God's people. It says God and his anointed. And in this context, is speaking specifically about the Messiah, the Christ who would come, Jesus, God's anointed. But we are also of God's people. We've been grafted and adopted in. And the Bible says that we too have been anointed, right? The Holy Spirit. And so when we look at this in a very practical sense, it's not like the people who are the nations who are raging against God and taking counsels with evil, dark spiritual forces are somehow like shooting arrows at God up into the sky. He's, they're shooting arrows both literally and, and verbally and in many other ways against us, God's people, God's anointed. That's how God's being attacked. And keep that in mind in relationship to the world that we're living in today. Be aware. So when we look at Psalm 2, verse 2, just to connect the dot there, when it says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together to come against the Lord and his anointed, we say how the kings of the earth, the Bible says it, not me, who purpose to rage against God and his anointed, they are then and now and, 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 and in the future, prophetically speaking, they are willingly influenced and even controlled by, spiritual, by evil spiritual forces. They've given themselves over to it. And, 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 and I think we should keep this in mind when we not only look at the, the, the leaders of, of today, the kings of the earth today, um, who are still raging and in, in, in against God, but also be mindful of it in relationship to what the Bible talks about in the future. And, and we, we know a lot of that from what we read in the book of Revelation, but don't be deceived. It's taking place today. Now, it needs to be pointed out be wise. Let me just say that again. Be wise. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not. But God's word is true. And, and, and there's Satan's agenda is, is being brought forth to try to thwart the will of God. It's not going to happen. No weapon that's formed against us or the church will prevail. God's plans will still proceed, and we're going to talk about that. But don't be ignorant when we look around at the things that are going on in the world around us today that we're a part of is, is somehow that it's, that it's truly just people looking out for your best intentions. Okay? Be wise. Your Bible said it. God said it very clear. You're either for me or you're against me. There's no middle ground. And even if people might have some good intentions in their hearts and their mind, apart from a real love relationship with Jesus Christ, they're not moving forward the agenda of God with their thoughts and intentions. It needs to be pointed out that in addition to this, get back on track, in addition to this future um, a prophetic aspect of this psalm, which we're going to look at, and which it clearly says, that carries into our day from when this was written and, 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 and beyond into to the time that's still yet to come, this psalm is historic in nature. 
Okay, I want you to get that because there's a cool connection to the throne and the kingdom of God that's being spoken of here through, the, through David. Okay, and, and, and we see this historic connection and the, the events behind all of it when we consider that even though the psalm does not say in its inscription, there's really no inscription here that speaks of authorship. Mine just says the reign of God anointed, but, but there's nothing in here that speaks to the authorship of who this psalm is like other psalms do, if you just turn over to Psalm 3, you'll see that if you have a Bible that has inscriptions, it says that it's a psalm of David, right? A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So we know that it's a psalm written by David. But guys, we use the whole context of God's word to discern what God's speaking to us. And it's a really cool thing when you do that because when you go to Acts chapter 4, verse 25, we're told clearly that David wrote this psalm. And man, that should open up our understanding to what's going on here, especially in connection to the messianic throne of God that will last forever, which we know came through King David, the tribe of Judah, right? So let's do some, let's do some connecting of some dots here. So in light of this, we can discern what David might have been accounting when he wrote this in a historical perspective. And when you begin to connect the biblical dots, we see that this psalm is probably referring to events. Now, I'm not going to read them all to you, but I'm going to give them to you to go back and read on your own, and then I'll kind of just expound on them briefly. But there's uh, many places where David, David kind of is writing from in relationship to what had happened out of this psalm. Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 5, okay, verses 17 through 25. Go read that. Go read 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 14, and 2 Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 through 19. And you're going to see a series of events that coincide with what we're reading here. And when we read these historic accounts, really at that time it's about the nation of Israel, we see that when Israel first became a mighty nation, they were ruled directly by God through his prophets and his judges. You guys remember that, right? First it was prophets, then it was the book of Judges, and we know how well that went ultimately because the judges were corrupt, and, and it says that at that time everybody began to do what was right in their own mind, right? And so, so the, God was, was leading through people, these, these prophets and these judges, but God was like the king at that point. And, and, and that's the way that God had set it up to be, through his word, but the nation of Israel resisted God's rule, just like what we read here. That's in the hearts of all men. They resisted God's rule, and they made this decision, this decision that I think that, that we often do with, with a wrong motive they, in the same kind of way, and they made this decision that they wanted a king to rule over them. And here was their, their, their reasoning in that. They, they, said, they said, we want a king to rule over us just like all the other nations that are around us. Well, these nations were Gentile nations. They were heathens. They were pagans. And the kings were not nice, not good to their people. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we're told that they asked the prophet Samuel to appoint a king to lead them and that this displeased Samuel. Yet God came and spoke to Samuel and, and, and told him to, to um, give them what they were asking for. Now, according to scriptures, other passages of scripture, like Genesis chapter 17, verse 6, is, is prophetic about these events that we read of in, first, in 2 Samuel. Genesis chapter 16, Genesis chapter 35, verse 11, and Genesis chapter, uh, or in Numbers chapter 24, verse 7, what we see from all those passages of Scripture as a prophetic, from a prophetic point of view is that God knew there was coming a time when Israel would reject his rule 
over them and ask for a king. He knew it was coming. And in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14 through 20, we're told that God had even made arrangements for that time for when it would come. And so when Saul, who was the first king of Israel, and we know about that guy, right? When, when Saul was appointed Israel's first king, it was by God giving the people ultimately what they were de- demanding for. And we need to see that in contrast to the fact that it was not a work to establish, it was not a work of God to establish a dynasty like what we're reading about here in the prophetic sense. And, and this is understood when we remember that the king whom God had foretold of in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, who would have an everlasting kingdom, a universal kingdom, he had to come from the tribe of what? Anyone? David. David, the descendant of the tribe of Judah. And we know that wasn't the true of Saul. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And according to 2 Samuel chapter 7, David, who would eventually replace Saul as king, he was from the tribe of Judah, and David was ultimately God's choice to establish this dynasty that would eventually bring forth the Messiah into the world. And that's the connection to what we're reading here in regards to the historic sin aspect of it. However, when we consider Psalm 2, now this is where it gets, where it all comes together in Psalm or when we connect Psalm 2 in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see that this dynasty that God foretold of goes far beyond David and any of his, his earthly descendants, right? Any of his earthly successors. And here's the reason why. Because the covenant that was made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and the prophecies found in this psalm, they speak about this universal kingdom and a throne that will be established forever. And I point this out because we know that this everlasting universal kingdom can only be fulfilled in God's anointed, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. A descendant of David who ultimately is the only begotten son of God. And with this understanding... With this understanding, we now see that the nations, the people referenced here in verse 2, right, are the Gentile nations. They're the the heathens, the the pagan people, and they're ultimately rebelling against God and against God's rule. Now, the nations are led in rebellion by kings, is what we're told, and they're all resisting God and his anointed one, and sadly, this voice of rebellion, which says this, quote, look at it, the voice of rebellion of these nations, when they speak, they say, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. It's a voice that's been heard down through the centuries. And, and, and when, we, when we consider the connection between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, we should automatically go, Psalm 2 is about kingship. Psalm 1 is about the law. So what are they trying to cast away? The cords and the bonds. It's the word of God. And so when we consider that and we see these actions, we see this and we look at it in a, in a collective sense with the nations here, we should also go back to what the Word of God tells us in regards to when it all kind of first began. And we know in the Garden of Eden it was individuals. Sin's always been around this same kind of, we want it our way, not your way. We don't, uh, you know, we don't want your rules and regulations. It's always been in the heart of men who's sinful. But the first collective attempt about what we're reading here goes back to the Tower of Babel. Do you remember that? 
with a man by the name of Nimrod. And we know that, that um, in this collective sense, the people of the earth gathered together with one language at that time, right? And, and, and this is what they were seeking to do. I love this quote. It's from, it's from the book of Genesis. It says that they were seeking to, quote-unquote, make a name for themselves. Apart from who? Apart from what? Apart from God. Apart from his rules, his, his laws, his commands, his ways. Meaning they were seeking to cast the bonds of God, God's law, God's rule, and God's way in order to do things their way. But I think it's safe to say that this same, this same voice of rebellion, this same heart of rebellion that speaks out in this way is being heard I think in even greater ways in these last days, even more so than when it first kind of collectively began with the, 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 the people at the Tower of Babel. As it appears, guys, that globally speaking, once again, that there is a united voice of rebellion against the rule of God and Jesus who is his anointed one. I don't think that's an overstatement. And like the psalm says, the nations are still crying out with this desire to be free from God's rule. Let us break their bonds into pieces and cast away their cords. And it's clear that the kings of this age do not want to submit to God's rule. Why? Because they want things their way. They refuse to admit to, to, this, to this thing, this truth. Okay, This is the truth, that God rules in the affairs of men. It's not that just he... You see, people think, well, God just participates. And sometimes we think that too, and we're wrong. Is God just participating in my life, participating in this world that we're living in? No, that's not what we're being told here, and that's not what the Word of God tells us. And sometimes we doubt that because we see things going on that look to be out of God's control, but what we're being told is that God rules, rules as sovereign over the affairs of men. It's not out of His control. No matter who the president is, no matter who's in charge of any government or any authority in this world that we live in, God rules. But like we've just seen in our study through the book of Revelation, in the last days, this word of prophecy found in this psalm, they're going to have a complete fulfillment in the future, right? We know that all the kings of the earth will unite to fight against God in a very literal battle. But what were we told about it? It's a vain thing. It's a vain thing. And the, and the response of God is heard in the following verses. I, I, I can't help but say it. I, you, have, you ever seen like the little guy fighting against the big guy and the big guy just puts his hand out on the forehead? And then they're like, you know, that's kind of what it's going through my mind when I look at this next section. Because in verse 6, we're told about how God sees this and it says, he who sits in heaven shall laugh. And it's kind of like, <laughs> really? You know? And, and I don't want to demoralize God or bring him down to our level. He's completely just, completely holy. But in this, it says, the Lord shall hold them in derision and he shall speak to them in his wrath and his distress. It's a very serious thing. Speak distress to them in his deep displeasure. Yet he declares, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And that is the literal physical um, hand, if you will, 
the, the figurative hand where, where Christ is, is, is holding this back because he's the one who rules. He's the one who reigns. And this is what God has, has said is going to happen. And you know what? It's going to happen. So we're told that God responds to these threats of the men, and he does so in three ways. The first is by laughing. And it's this holy voice, this holy voice of, of derision, which, which also means mockery. And, and this is because God, who's the creator of all things, who's all-powerful, who's the great I am, right? He's greater than man. And so he doesn't, he's no, he doesn't need to fear the attacks of any kind of earthly or spiritual force for that matter. And in light of this, I want to point out that God is not not speaking today in judgment. I always want to be, I always want to remind us of that. Right now, this is not how it is. Right now, God is not speaking to us in judgment. Even though he prophesies of it, he's not speaking of it right now. He's not speaking in judgment right now. Rather, he speaks in grace. Where? From the cross. The cross of Calvary. But this day that we read about is coming when God will have the last laugh. And, and, laugh. and, and this will happen at an appointed time when those who are to be saved will be saved. It's an appointed time. Again, it shows that God rules over all. It's not like God's trying to catch back up and figure out how he's going to bring it all to an end. The appointed time when those who are to be saved will be saved from the judgment that is to come, and then God will deal with these nations, the nations of the world, this rebellion in a godly way. And in addition to the voice of derision, the voice of mockery that's put forth in laughter, there is also the voice of displeasure heard in verse 5, right? God speaks a voice of displeasure. And in light of this, we, I think it needs to again say that, that um, that's not the case right now. For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Lord didn't send, God did not send his son right now to condemn the world, but to what? To save the world. And so there is this voice of displeasure that's being spoken for a future time and event, but right now God is not speaking in his wrath to us at this time. He's speaking to the world through his son, Jesus Christ, in grace. And we know this from passages of Scripture, like Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 3, where it tells us that, that in the past God's spoken like this, but now he's speaking to us through his son. And what's the message? It's a message of grace, a message of salvation, a message of forgiveness of sins. It's a demonstration of God's love. But however, like we've just learned from our study through the book of Revelation a few weeks ago when we ended, that there is coming a day when God will send his wrath upon all the nations of the world, right? And the word displeasure used in verse 5 is a very graphic word in the Hebrew that describes what we read about in the book of Revelation. It literally means fiery anger. And it should direct our attention to the tribulation and the events described and detailed in detailed in, in the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 19. And from that, we know that it's a, it, from what we've read and studied, it's an awful time of judgment that comes upon the land, the sea, the heavens, the moons and the stars, right? The, the world of nature itself and, again, and, and against peoples and nations and millions of people will die in plagues and in these heaven-sent disasters. And during the tribulation, the nation of Israel, even they will, will, will be purged. God will bring forth a discipline upon them to, to prepare them a believing remnant for the return of Jesus who will ultimately reestablish or he will establish his throne in Jerusalem. And even though many will be saved during that time of tribulation, we're told that it's a time of decision and many will seal their decision with their own lives. 
Now, the final way that God speaks in this section is, is, is with this voice of declaration, right? So it's derision, it's, it's um, uh, displeasure, but it's also a voice of declaration where God declares in verse 6 how he has set his anointed, his king, upon his holy hill. And listen, even though Jesus is not yet seated on his throne of glory, which we're reading upon here, the throne of David, which is prophetically um, spoken about by God in, in Genesis and in other places in Deuteronomy. He is seated. We know that Jesus is seated right now. The work is done. Testelestai is finished, right? He's, but he's seated where? Amen. At the right hand of the Father. That's where his throne is, and it is his throne, which is and is to come, is as certain as God's word, which says it's going to happen. And what we know from Hebrews chapter 6 and, and, and verse 7 is that Jesus today, he's the priest king, like Melchizedek. And as the priest king, he's daily making intercession for us. Yet, one day soon, I think very soon, like Jesus promised by his own words in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, he's going to return. And then when he comes, it's in glory. And he'll sit upon a throne to judge and to rule the nations. And being a part of God's future plans, we then read about the voice of the Son in verses 7 and 9. And he says, I'm going to declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten in you. And you ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And these words that Jesus speak, guys, in these verses, his voice is telling us what the Father has said to him in this eternal decree. And, and I, I, I draw your attention to that, and I actually I, I speak a Selah, and we're going to talk about that next week in, in Psalm 3, but it's just stop and meditate about that, this, what we hear for a second. Meditate on it. Think upon it. Let it seek in because really what is being spoken here is an incredibly comforting thing. It's a comforting thing to know that God has decreed the fulfillment of his plan. God has spoke it, it's going to come to pass. And when I think about in the relationship to my own life, I take great hope to that because the Bible says that he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to what? Finish it. And how many times have you woken up or gone through your day and go, there's no hope for me? Not because of Jesus, because you look at yourself and you go, I messed up again. I did it again. I did it again. And you cry out to God and you're just like, why can't I just be different? I want to be different. And God's going, Jesus is going, it's okay. We're working on you. We're going to finish it. And it's the same kind of decree, but in a greater sense when, it, when we're talking about all of God's plan for all of creation. He's decreed it. And it's going to happen. His plan and here's the deal, what we're being told in that, in the same thing that we see in ourselves, where we can't get in the way of God's own work in us, amen, is that man will not and cannot hinder God's work, no matter who is on an earthly throne at this time or in the time to come. God's throne is greater. And now these words, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Listen, those words were first spoken in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, when Jesus was baptized. You remember? John the Baptist in the Jordan River, the one who came to prepare the way for the Messiah, to point people to him, the one who is greater than me, he said, the one whose shoestrap I'm not even fit to unbuckle. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when Jesus came up out of the water, and we heard the voice of God speaking, right? 
as the Holy Spirit descended upon a dove. He said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then we hear the same, same wordage again in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. And this time it was as Jesus was preparing, he was facing his upcoming death on the cross. It was just days away. And it says that Jesus and his disciples went up upon a high mountain, and there Jesus was transfigured before them. His earthly body, that shroud of physicalness, was taken away, and, and he was revealed in all of his glory. And at that time, the same words were speaking, spoken, you are my son, Today I've begotten you. But here, listen, we see it one other time in Acts chapter 13, and I think it's perhaps the most significant. This. It's a quote from this psalm here because the second, the third time that we see it quoted in Scripture about Jesus was after he had been buried and after he had risen again from the grave. And because of Jesus' victory, because what does that mean? What does that death and burial mean? It means victory over sin and death. Behold, my only son, He's alive. He's a victor. And he, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, is a result of that. Having been pleasing to the Father, has been given inheritance, which is all the nations. You think God's going to renege on that? No. And it's because of his faithful work on the cross that this has been given to Jesus Christ. And so we hear the voice of pleading in the final verses. Now therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you, you, you judges of the earth. You should do something with this information. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. And when His wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in Him. These final words are the words of the, of the voice of the Holy Spirit. An appeal from the Spirit to the sons of men to submit themselves to Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you've never done that, I don't know all of you, don't delay. And if we all know Christ and we've, we've submitted to him, take this word, these truths, and share them with someone who has not yet submitted their lives to Christ. Listen, when you do so, understand that in these verses, the Holy Spirit is appealing to every area of us as persons in the way that God's created us. I want you to key in on that because I love the fact that God um, is patient with us. He just, here's what I mean. In verse 10, look, in, look at, he appeals to the mind. And in so many places in Scripture, God does that. You know, he, he tells us why we should do something. You know, my, growing up in my home, I don't know how it was in yours. Not always. It's like, don't do that. Why? Because I said so. And it, sometimes God does that. You know, and I, I appreciate that. He's God. He can do that. But, but, you know, most of the time, God gives us good reason. He explains things. He appeals to our intellect. He gave us a mind for a reason. And here the Holy Spirit says, he says, be wise. Be instructed. Use your brain, that sound mind that God's given to you. You see, there's two different kinds of wisdom, remember? There's the wisdom of God and there's the wisdom of the world. And the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18. We're not called to walk in the counsel of the fool, the ungodly. But we are called to be wise. To walk in the counsel of God. You see, our world, guys, everybody's so smart right now, right? And even if you, you know, how many times do you have a conversation with somebody and they're like, oh, yeah, it's this way. And I go, oh, no, it's that way. And it's like, let's ask Siri. 
she knows. Or what does Google, what is, what is, I'll say it like how I say it. What does the Google say? You know, so much knowledge right at our fingertips. And it seems that there's more knowledge than there ever has been before, but there also seems to me to be a whole lot less wisdom in spite of all the knowledge. Why? Because there's no fear of God. And God's wisdom is found in God's word. Yet the kings of this earth, the rulers of this world, they do not want the word of God. Don't trust them. That's everything in a nutshell. Don't trust them. Trust God. <laughs> use your mind. But also the Holy Spirit says, he says, use your heart. He's appealing to the heart, right? In verse 11, he says it simply this. Serve him from your heart. Instead of rebelling and resisting, people should bow down to Jesus Christ and serve him. There's this reverential joy that takes place when we, when we yield in humility to Jesus. I love this this, oh, I don't want to get ahead of it. No, I'm going to stop there. Okay. With the heart. Fall in love with him, right? But how about also with your will? And your will is also defined in Scripture as your strength, okay? It's that, ugh, you know, your will. And many of us are strong-willed, and, and some of us want to say we're not. You're just, you're just more subversive in it. And, and, and he appeals in verse 12 by saying this to the will, kiss the son. And it's this, it's this implication of paying homage. And we've all seen those, you know, um, movies that are like with knights and kings and, and the one you come to pay homage to the king and you walk up and he's on his throne, right? And you bow down before him and take the hand and you kiss the king. And it's, it's this respect, it's this reverence, it's this loving surrender. And guys, there's two aspects of that that goes on within this kiss. It's this affection for him. And it's again, it's this call to, you don't, you don't have to, you get to. And God could... God could make you have to. And he's, there's a day coming, it says, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But now it's an appeal to will you out of love. And the awesome thing about it is we're called into this love relationship with Christ Jesus and that same love relationship that, that we have with him is what he's called us to have with one another. And that's why we don't forsake the assembling together as ourselves as it is with some because it's an opportunity to show love to love one another. Man, there's a lot of hard things going on. I need you guys. I need you to encourage me, to hold me accountable, to speak truth to me, just to love me. You know, the Bible says that we're to kiss Christ, but we're also called, and, and I don't want you to kiss me, but it says, <laughs> kiss, greet each other with a holy kiss. And, and it's, it's, you know, it's, let's, we're not going to start kissing each other with a holy kiss. But it's like, are you affectionate? Is there a willful attempt to be affectionate to God and to others, right? Jesus said in all the law is contained in these two commands, love God and love other. You see, the thing about a kiss too, I'm going to end with this if the worship team wants to come up. I could go on. I wish I could. I wish there was more time, but we're not going to. We didn't get no bagels. We're hungry. We want lunch. Um, a kiss not only speaks of love, but it speaks of reconciliation, I was sharing with the first service, and my wife was here, and she couldn't remember, but when we first started going to Calvary Chapel, we started taking some, like, a marriage class that they offered. You know, you have a parenting class and a marriage class, and, and the, um, um, 
the, the instructors of the time were talking about, you know, as husbands and wives, you're not to go to bed mad at one another, right? Don't let the sun set on your wrath. And they were given that as a tool for how to have a, a good marriage. And there's, you need more than that, trust me. That's just one tool. But, and, and, and you can do that. You're like, you can go to bed not mad and you can kind of fake it, right? You're like, I'm sorry, you forgive me, yeah. And then you kind of roll over and you're like, Maybe I'm the only one that does that. I don't know. But one of the things that they told us is like, you know, you do that, but then you kiss. Because the kiss is a telling thing, right? And, and, and you guys, you know, if your, your wife's still mad, do you get soft lips or hard lips? You're like, <laughs> it's not a holy kiss. <laughs> And it's awesome because this thing is kiss the sun and speaks not only of it, seeks some reconciliation. Be reconciled. Be reconciled to the sun. Embrace him. And God has been reconciling the world by the cross of Jesus Christ, is what we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. And as we look at this, I'll end with this verse. If you guys will stand, I want to read this as we're standing. The Holy Spirit appeals to the mind, to the heart, and to the will. And it reminds me of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, right? And when we're instructed on how to really love the Lord, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, hear, O living stone, Calvary Chapel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your will, with all of your strength. And Father, I pray, God, that we would see again, Lord, that this is your desire for us. And Lord, that there's always time and opportunity now for reconciliation, for repentance, for restoration, Lord. And I pray, God, that these truths that, that we find this morning, that they would move us, that they would inspire us, that they would encourage us, give us joy to share with others around us. Lord, help us to love you well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. search the world but it couldn't fill me man's empty praise and treasures that fade are never enough then you came along and put me back together